Some years ago, a well-known American economist was invited to a poor South American country. The government had decided to build a hydroelectric plant along a river, which required a large expanse of land adjacent to the river to be excavated. The government was eager to show off the enormous project to an influential, influential American. The economist was amazed to see hundreds of men digging at the earth with shovels. He called over one of the government ministers and said, why aren't you using earth-moving equipment? You'd save time and money. To which the economist replied, or to which the minister replied, but sir, we are trying to provide jobs for as many people as possible. To which the economist said, well, if that's the case, to take away their shovels and give everyone a teaspoon. I give the economist high marks for wit, and I'm sure from the perspective of economic theory, his point is well taken. But unfortunately, what the economist did not seem to understand is something more fundamental about the human person. He was not operating from what Catholic theologians would call a Christian anthropology, meaning the study of the human person in his or her relation to the divine reality. That is, understanding men and women as being made in the image and likeness of the triune God. Christian anthropology teaches that work is a fundamental expression of human dignity. The compendium of the church's social doctrine thus teaches human work has a twofold significance, objective and subjective. In the objective sense, it is the activities of men and women to produce things and to exercise dominion over the earth. But in the subjective sense, work is the activity of the human person that corresponds to his or her personal vocation. This subjectivity gives to work its particular dignity, which does not allow it to be considered as a simple commodity or an impersonal element of the apparatus of production. While I am not here as a priest to tell you that governments should necessarily engage in public work projects for the sake of trying to alleviate unemployment, we can see that the economists fail to appreciate the subjective dignity of work. Because a man can dig with a shovel for eight hours a day and feel like a man. To do so affirms his dignity because he is using his strength to accomplish some useful goal, regardless of whether objectively one could argue that the government would have been better advised to use modern excavating machines. But the kind of reductio ad absurdum argument that says, well, okay, if you want to employ the maximum number of workers, give them teaspoons, that is failing to respect human dignity. It would be like a punishment that one might receive in the army, scrubbing toilets with a toothbrush or something like that. If you offered somebody that kind of job, they would know that it was just patronizing make work it would offend a person's dignity to earn a living like this. In turning to the parable from today's gospel, it's tempting to assume that it is either intended to teach us something exclusively about the here and now or something exclusively about the hereafter. Some try to use it to support laws mandating a living wage or conversely, the right of owners to pay their workers as they please. Others say that it's not a parable about human justice at all, but only about how God will welcome everyone into his kingdom, regardless of how late in life they turn from their sin. But instead, I think we are meant to see the irreplaceable value of solidarity that must exist 
in any human community in order for it to function. The compendium of the social doctrine of the church stresses a just society can become a reality only when it is based upon the transcendent dignity of the human person. Hence, the social order and its development must invariably work for the benefit of the human person, since the order of things is to be subordinate to the order of persons, and not the other way around. Further, it is necessary to consider every neighbor without exception as another self. Every political, economic, social, scientific, and cultural program must be inspired by this awareness of the primacy of each person over the society. The full-day workers who grumbled against the owner exhibited a fundamental lack of charity or love, meaning that they aren't willing the good of their co-workers. They were given what they were owed, the objective value of their work. So there's no reason for them to complain. Indeed, there is much reason for them to rejoice that the owner was generous enough to give the others a full day's wage, full day's wage as well, even if those others didn't quite earn it. That's why the church speaks of the preferential option for the poor, meaning not to see life as a zero-sum game, that I lose because someone else gains, even if they don't quite deserve it as much as I think I do. That's not meant to be a defense of any particular political ideology or any particular solution to the problem of poverty. It's certainly not meant to endorse the Marxist idea from each according to his ability to each according to his need. That might work on the level of a family or in a self-selecting group like a monastery. It won't work in society at large. But it is a defense of the idea that we as a society, not necessarily always the government, must concern ourselves with the well-being of those who have less or those who need help, regardless of their objective merit. St. John Paul the Great said, the equality brought about by justice is limited to, limited to the realm of objective and extrinsic goods, while love and mercy bring it about so that people meet one another in the value which is proper to man himself, with the dignity that is accorded to him. No human community can exist when people stand on their rights and prerogatives without actively willing the good of others. Think of a family in which each person saw the relationship to the others simply as a matter of getting the most they could while giving the least that was required. It would fail instantly. Instead, in any human community, there must always be a generosity, a graciousness, a giving way, especially those who, for whatever reason, are not doing so well on their own and need the help of others. In other words, a fundamental component of human community is this, the recognition of the divine dignity of others. The vineyard owner understood this. Sadly, his workers did not. Charity, meaning love, is not something that we just add on to justice. It's not something that is there merely to soften the harsh edges of justice. Charity is, in fact, the engine of justice, without which justice could not exist. Because justice is not some self-actualizing thing, unless it is allied to love. A famous philosopher said, it is compassion rather than any principle of justice that can prevent us from being cruel to our fellow man. It's why Pope Benedict said in his encyclical, Caritatis et Veritate, charity is the principal driving force behind the authentic development of every person and every human institution. 
Charity is an extraordinary force that leads people to opt for courageous and generous engagement in the world. Charity is the heart of the church's social doctrine. It gives real substance to our personal relationships with God and with our neighbor. It is the principle not only of micro-relationships, such as we find with friends and family and other small groups, but also of larger relationships in the social, economic, and political order. The most perfect human community is the communion of saints in heaven. These are persons who are animated by supernatural love. The communion of saints exists in heaven because people there are able to share in the perfect love that radiates from the heart of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is the model that we must try to imitate as closely as we can in this life. As the first reading said, God's ways are not our ways. But the point is, is that as Christians, God's ways must become our ways. To be the kind of person who can dwell in the kingdom of heaven, we must be the type of person who can love as the saints love in heaven. As my seminary rector often put it, we are not ready for heaven until we are ready to love everyone that we are going to meet there. C.S. Lewis captured this perfectly in the screw tape letters when a demon voices disgust at God's plan for humanity. The demon says, the enemy, God, wants to bring man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world and know it to be the best and rejoice in that fact without being any more glad at having done it than he would if it had been done by another. God wants him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his neighbor's talents as gratefully as he can his own. He wants to kill their animal self-love as soon as possible. But it's his long-term policy, I fear, to restore them to a new kind of self-love, a charity and a gratitude for all selves, including their own. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.